Thank you for setting your podcast out a 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. Congress is back this week from a two-week recess, just as the Biden administration closes in on its first 100 days in office. It's looking like much of the low-hanging political fruit, $1.9 trillion worth, uh, has largely been picked following passage of the last COVID relief bill. And so now the real fun begins. Crisis on the border, infrastructure, a risen China flexing its muscle. Tough debates over racial justice, policing, and voting rights appear no closer to any broadly accepted resolution. And lest we forget, at least according to the government, we remain in a public health emergency. So what can get done? What will get done? Who's going to do it? I'm looking at my guests today for some answers. My colleagues here at the firm, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Thomas, are going to help me break down 2021 in 21 minutes or less, or it's free. Bruce, David, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. Happy birthday, Dean Hingson. <laughs> well, thank you. I am halfway to 90, and uh, what, what an exciting 45 years it's been. Thank you. DT, I'll start with you. We're, we're closing in on the first 100 days of, of the Biden administration. Uh, we'll, we'll start to see those report cards circulating. Uh, what's a fair grade for what the administration's been able to accomplish here when their political capital is at its highest? So I'd maybe not a surprise here. I give them an A minus and uh, I'll walk through why in the time since it's the inauguration, what the, the president's been able to get done here. Number one, a laser like focus on covid response. We are now up to about three point five million uh, shots in arms a day. He uh, doubled his goal of getting 100 million shots to 200 million shots in arms by his first 100 days. Looks like he is going to uh, hit that that goal. He passed a COVID bill through Congress, a massive bill to uh, try to get our our focus back on uh, beating back the pandemic here. A huge accomplishment here with a, a razor thin margin in both the House and the Senate. He also has his entire cabinet confirmed. Um, all those uh, cabinet officials are in. The only uh, hiccup was over at OMB with Neera Tanden. So he's been able to move that along. And I think maybe the most important thing is, is the change in tone, where we have an empathetic president who is, I, I believe, a little bit more relatable to uh, what the American public's been going through for the past year. Plus, on top of that, we have a staff with experience. I think we'd forgotten what it's like to have government officials and uh, senior government staffers who knew how to get things done. So uh, I look at those four things and I think, all right, that's, uh, you know, maybe you think that was an A here. I'm giving him an A minus for the only negative that he has so far is, of course, his dog. Uh, Major Biden keeps biting people. (laughs) And that is a real problem for this administration that they need to get on top of in the second quarter. How would the media, by the way, be describing a president with a German shepherd that kept biting people? A Republican German Shepherd, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, our uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to Major Biden's dog handlers, uh, who uh, uh, really have to be careful and relieving himself uh, throughout the re- the West Wing, according to reports. Well, Bruce, how about it? I mean, I, th- I think DT lays it out pretty well in terms of accomplishments, uh, political capital at a high water mark in the first one hundred days. But come on, this this uh, this can't last. It won't last. Uh, you already see the landmines. The administration is going to have to start working its way through to get anything else accomplished. What do you think they're thinking right now? So 
I think their thinking is the following. First, they're likely to lose the House in 2022, as so many presidents do in the first midterm. The margin's so small. They need to get as much as they can get done as fast as they can. Number two, Republicans in a civil war right now, they don't think there are a lot of gettable votes, and their lesson from 2009-2010 is the price of those votes are too high. Number three, they're managing the Democrats' civil war. They're satisfying progressives with policies and moderates with rhetoric and style. Four, there's the post-pandemic positivity. They assume he's going to be the wartime president who won the war. That will elevate job approvals, so they figure they've got some room to work with. Same with number five, best politics are a white-hot economy. The anemic recovery was poisoned politically in 2010. They're looking at, you know, six to eight percent growth. That's a lot of goodwill. Number six, deficits don't matter. The 2000 to 2020 lesson of four presidents, R's and D's. Number seven, the Fed's on board. They're supporting a go big agenda. Number eight, the mainstream media's on board. The robust Trump antibodies mean a longer Biden honeymoon. Number nine, the business community's on board. Profit tsunami from the fiscal stimulus, and they're aligned on culture wars, given their workforce, customers, and executives. And number 10, Biden wants to be great. He's having historians come over and talk about basically how to write him in. It's it's amazing what you can accomplish with a chip on your shoulder. These guys don't want to be an average president. They don't want to be a transitory president. They want to be transformational and great. Uh, it's his third time running for president. He is not throwing away his shot. A crisp 10-point response from the great Bruce Melman. DT, it seems to me, then looking ahead, obviously, thanks for all that. What have you done for me lately? What's the second 100 days? And can anything consequential, anything transformational be done with the Senate filibuster still in place? Uh, I think the, the answer is yes here. And, and what we're looking at for the next 100 days here, we're getting a little bit of a a head start because we're not quite at 100 days yet, but is infrastructure. The House is back this week. The Speaker has made it very clear that she would like to get an infrastructure bill out of the House in the next really uh, six to eight weeks or so. She has said by July 4th. Under any other Speaker, I would say that's not possible. But this is Speaker Pelosi, who is arguably the best and most powerful Speaker we have certainly seen in any of our lifetimes and probably in the lifetimes of people before us. So she is going to be pushing hard and driving that train. We're going to see Chairman DeFazio get the first crack at this thing in the House as they're coming back into session here. But a number of other committees will also get to put their stamp on this uh, package. The Speaker has razor thin margins right now. The good news is there's a special election in New Orleans for for, uh, Cedric Richmond's seat coming up, Deb Halan's seat in New Mexico. So I think that will double her majority in a matter of uh, a couple of weeks here uh, once we uh, those two seats are filled. It still remains very tight. But I think that's what we're going to see. I mean, I think they're going to be very much focused on getting that big package to move forward, working closely with the White House and getting as big a package as they can over to the Senate. And that's where the real negotiations start. Well, And running in parallel with that, DT, are two other things. First, legislatively, there is what may actually be a bipartisan effort on China, the Endless Frontier Act, uh, and a whole lot of bipartisan interest in trying to help America's up our competitive game, especially with respect to technology, and to make our supply chains more resilient and less geopolitically at risk. The other piece, though, that probably merits mention is, even if the Hill finds itself mired in partisanship or sledding slow, awaiting reconciliation to reconciliation, 
more and more individuals are being nominated, confirmed, put in place, and getting uh, the you know running in various regulatory and administrative roles. You know, the, just to pick on one, the Securities and Exchange Commission under Chairman Gensler is certainly setting up to be pretty transformational. Yeah, not only SEC, but in the antitrust space, House Judiciary Committee is ramping up with uh, with a series of bills uh, out of there that seems to have a fair amount of bipartisan cooperation. Uh, you read uh, Ken Buck's Third Way report, and he just lauds uh, Chairman Cicilline in an odd sort of, uh, I mean, Buck's pretty much a firebrand and just, just lauds him for all the bipartisan cooperation on the issue. Is that how they get after big tech? Well, FTC as well. DT, maybe a word on uh, on the reports coming out of your old stomping grounds. Yeah, I think this is the one place where we, we may see some bipartisan uh, agreement here on the Hill, and that is the oversight of our antitrust laws, both at the FTC and at the Department of Justice here. It seems like you know our, our antitrust laws have served us pretty well for well over 100 years at this point. But are there tweaks that can be made to make them more effective for the modern age? You've seen Chairman Cicilline in the House last Congress did a ton of work in this area. Senator Klobuchar is moving in her position as chairing the Antitrust Committee in the Senate. Senator Lee and others have also weighed in on these issues. I, I think you uh, this may be the time where we do see some changes. Well, I was just going to say, when we think of uh, independent agencies, so the FTC has put out, per DT's point, the notice of maybe trying to do a big tech rulemaking. But then you take a look at the Securities and Exchange Commission. There are potential changes to how they Regulations apply to SPACs that could, uh, you know, which are the new, new thing that could have a big impact. Uh, Gensler taught classes on crypto. It's an area of great interest to him. There's a talk about ESG disclosures and environmental uh, disclosures in corporate filings that could be game changing. The EPA is going to massively ramp up what it's doing. So is the IRS. So is the CFPB. So is the NLRB. We haven't even seen who comes into antitrust, but you're right. They'll be aggressive. So will the Federal Communications Commission. So will the ATF. It just seems like we're watching the parties realign here in real time. I was, you know, sort of amazed at this report uh, out of New York, where hedge funds are getting relief from their state and local, or getting their state and local tax deduction back if you're formed as a hedge fund in New York, and that's that's a Democratic initiative. Meanwhile. Republicans are finding fewer and fewer friends in corporate America, both over the voting rights issue and others. But you have to wonder, is is the Democratic Party the new home for corporate America or are they an entity without without a party, Bruce? I think corporate America is more homeless than they've historically been, you know, on economic policy, which historically was the, uh, you know, Republicans had their back. The GOP itself, as we both observed, Dean, is in the midst of a civil war and the stronger faction at the moment, which is the Trump faction's far more interested in uh, fighting culture wars and uh, politically incorrect provocations, which makes business overwhelmingly uncomfortable. And that's not the side of the ball they want to be on. At the same time, you know, I don't think this turns corporate America into the Democratic Party because we know the infrastructure bill is going to be paid for by a return of a corporate rate from the current 21% to somewhere between 25 and 28, because the you know, the most energy within the Democratic Party is talking about how uh, you know business is insufficiently unionized, is excessively powerful, uh, and is frequently the problem to which they point when asking why America has excessive inequality or uh, or hasn't done the right things in their minds on climate change. Business is homeless. 
But Bruce, you've been a, a pretty articulate over the years in talking about business stepping Thanks, into the vacuum <laughs> of uh, where there's been either a, a lack of movement on, on public policy issues or feeling the need to get involved in issues that maybe don't quite affect the bottom line, but affect the reputation of companies. And I think that is uh, really uh, been supercharged over the past year or so. Senator McConnell is both a man of few words, and when he speaks, he's very deliberate. But I think he may have had a rare misstep over the weekend when he advised CEOs to stay out of politics, except when it comes to donations. I think that uh, at least the sense I'm getting in talking to people in the corporate community is that statement was met with a little bit of offense. Do we see a long-term shift going on? I'm not sure we're there yet, but definitely a change in attitude. We're going to find out because they're they're going to uh, they're going to look at adjustments to the corporate rate and other taxes, and you have to wonder where where does where do corporations go to to push back on these pay fors for for large scale government spending? Yeah, so it's my hope, Dean and DT, that the next quarterly update, which needs to come out in April to keep the pace, is going to very much focus. Uh, I'm my working title: woke capitalism and its discontents. And the challenge for businesses that want to have purpose, you know, it matters. It helps them recruit and retain employees. It helps them with customers. Uh, It helps them vis-a-vis investors. It helps them burnish brand in an era where activists can have a huge impact on a brand. But as DT knows, and you know too, Dean, we're getting asked more and more by businesses for advice. When should we engage? How do we avoid a slippery slope where we become an NGO, where we're expected to speak you know, on on every social policy issue that's not within our wheelhouse. And there's no formula. You know, we I, I was just uh, just Sunday night giving advice to a CEO who was texting, asking about thoughts on how to do it. You know, the advice to date I gave is first, there was no formula. Second, you got to build a diverse internal team and a consistent process that there's safety in numbers. You know, working with other business leaders in coordination is generally safer that you're best off if you inoculate yourself in advance through success, through meaningful stakeholder engagement. You know, if you've spent years on civil rights to pick on JP Morgan, you know, they just gave, uh, they just committed $30 billion to try to deal with systemic racism in housing. That demonstrates a genuine commitment, uh, which also helps them develop relationships with groups that they can hear out, that they can understand. You certainly need to make sure your employees feel heard And whenever possible, you need to uh, resist rushing in. Social media forces us to all think fast. These are calls that are best made when thinking slow. That's a great point. And and one of the things we're we're getting reached out to on as well is is how the government is going to confront China. You mentioned this uh, endless frontiers move in the Senate uh, to get a to get a bipartisan uh, China competitiveness bill together. DT, it seems like we're seeing a lot of redux of Trump's China policy from from the Biden folks on tariffs, trade, and continuing that uh, that competitive posture. Is he just picking up where Trump left off when it came when it comes to China? Yeah, I remember having conversations with you and with Bruce and others uh, last year where we said the one place where we thought both Biden and Trump were were fairly well aligned was on China policy, and I think we're seeing that sort of come to to fruition here. It's the one place where we haven't seen a dramatic shift. I mean, almost all other uh, areas, the Biden administration has been trying to roll back Trump administration policies, both foreign and domestic here. China remains a huge challenge for, for this administration and one going forward. 
DT is right that China is a huge challenge. It's a challenge for the country. It's a challenge for whoever sits in the White House. Both administrations are directionally similarly inclined. The Biden team is going to prioritize human rights more than the Trump team did. They're also likely to be uh, more predictable, more process-minded. But you know, to conflate the last topic and this topic, things like the Olympics in 2022 are coming. And there has already been a lot of pressure on corporate America to try to be consistent. If you've got a problem with voting rights in Georgia, why don't you have a problem with human rights in, in, in China and what's happening with the Uyghurs? I think Republicans see the potential to paint the administration as weak on China as something that they're looking to get behind whenever they can. And you've already seen from Senator Rubio and others efforts to highlight what they see as quote unquote woke corporate hypocrisy. So China is a really fraught and tough issue the scariest stuff are all the things you read about the experts uh, talking about the overflights of military act aircraft into Taiwan waters and, you know, and the, the in increasing militarism and risk that for the 100th anniversary of uh, the Chinese Communist Party, they're going to get Chairman Mao a present of taking Taiwan. <laughs> That's quite the present. Well, guys, uh, real quick here as we wrap up, I'm just curious as we sort of see the reemergence of the real world. As folks get vaccinated, there are hiccups here and there. One of the main ways we have historically engaged is by walking into those Capitol Hill offices and sitting down and looking the staff and the members in the eye. How do you see this uh, this reemergence of the real world shaping up? And is there any short or medium term prospect for going back to the way things used to be? Gosh, it's a tough question, Dean. And, and while on the one hand, I remain optimistic here and I'm, I'm thrilled at the pace of vaccinations here, I think us sitting down in the Capitol or having a cup of coffee in the Longworth cafeteria or cups um, still is a little bit way down the road here. They've got to deal with both the issue of the pandemic, but also the issue of security at the Capitol post January 6th. Incredibly complicated issues that they're confronting here. It is the uh, you know the Capitol is the beacon of democracy. I am sure we will get the public back in there at some point. But I think that's going to take a little bit more time than we'd all like to see. Bruce, 20 seconds. I think in the short term, the relief rally, we're going, we forgot how, how great it is to actually be with other people. I think we're looking at a six month of, you know, actually enjoying the meetings more than we used to because we missed them. Number two, in the future, it's more hybrid. I think things like, you know, having a face to face video call or fly ins may from time to time become zoom ins. And I think we're going to keep the things about this interim world that we liked and that helped. Well, from your lips to God's ear, I hope it's sooner than later, but we'll come back to break it all down when it does happen. Bruce Mellon, David Thomas, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thanks, Dean. Happy birthday, Dean. Thank you, guys.